your job is not to put greatness into people. That greatness already exists. Your job is to create an environment where that greatness can emerge, where people can be authentic to who they are. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and if you guys have been listening to the Flip My Flow podcast before, have you listened to it? Some of you guys? Show of hands? All right. Some of you guys. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, I'm super pumped to just, just be here and do this. Uh, Sangram here. I'm the co-founder and chief evangelist at Terminus. Some of you guys also know I'm the host of the Flip My Phone podcast. And uh, when, when Courtney, who, is, who works at the inbound team, reached out and said, who do you want to interview for this podcast? I just started looking at the list. And Brad, you were the first one. We said, hey, can I have the opportunity to interview Brad? And I remember she was like, well, why Brad? And I'm like, well, he has an incredible career, but when I was looking through all the different LinkedIn articles that he has written, and if you ha- don't follow him, I think you should follow him, because I think there's very few CEOs who are transparent and telling as it is, as they're going through that journey, and I think Brad has just done a phenomenal job. So I'm going to just quickly introduce Brad, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more about yourself as you go through that journey, but I, I just was like, man, it'd be really, really cool to, to interview Brad. So Brad, he's the, he's, he's the executive chairman at Intuit. Uh, he was the chairman and CEO for about 11 years mm-hmm. uh, over there, which is a long time for <laughs> you know, a public, you know, public face out there, a whole bunch of things around it. And prior to that, he's just been an ex- extraordinary leader out there. If you just read all the things he has done or the people who have talked about Brad, I was just like super impressed. So, Brad, welcome to the Flip My Phone podcast at the Inbound 2019. Thank you, and thanks for having me. And you need to raise your standards. If I was at the top of the list, we've got some <laughs> there. Well, there you go. That's the first, that's the first joke of it. Well, so share a little bit about yourself and, and a fun fact. Happy to do that. So I grew up in a little town in West Virginia called Canova, population 3,000 if you round up. And I had an amazing idyllic childhood growing up in an area that – the community raises you. I say everyone in a small town is raised by a community and everyone dies famous because everybody yeah. knows everything about you. <laughs> but if you want to know anything about my town, you just have to see the movie We Are Marshall about mm. the Marshall University football team with Matthew McConaughey because where the plane crashed was my hometown. And I was six years old and I watched that mountain burn. I watched this community rise from the ashes and basically rebuild itself. And I still wear this ring to this day. This is a Marshall University ring because my brothers and I went to school. So It was an incredible upbringing where a lot of important life lessons were taught. A fun fact about me was in the fourth grade, I had a crush on a little redheaded girl, and uh, she beat me in a spelling bee. The next day, she passed me a note and said, you could never be my boyfriend because you're stupid. All right. She was incredibly insightful in the fourth grade. (laughs) I went home that night, night. my IQ didn't go up, but my work ethic did. And I'm a big believer that intelligence is simply applied effort. So the rest of it is whatever you make it. That is awesome. Intelligence. I, I, lo- I love that. All right. So I want to start with something you wrote recent, um, not recently, but I think in the, in the in a few, few, just last few years around that. What did you learn from your mom? 
Oh my gosh. I've learned so many things from my mom and from mothers in general. I've, I've learned servant leadership and unconditional love and just sacrifice and the things that you're willing to do for people that you really want to invest in, which I think is inspiration for anyone who's in a people manager or a leadership role. But perhaps the biggest lesson I learned was gratitude. My mom taught me to always write handwritten thank you notes. Mm -hmm. And so to this day, I write handwritten birthday cards, handwritten thank you notes, and I try to make it very special and personal and let them know what it is about them that makes my life better. That's awesome. How, How many of you write thank you notes to your team? Like, I mean, that's fantastic, right? I started doing that about two years ago, and it is hard. Let me be very honest as, as a leader to kind of like take the time to in, in your back-to-back schedule, and now you're taking time to write, and then you're like, all right, what do I need to write about this? And, and it, I think it's almost like a muscle that you develop over a period of time where now it's way more easy. I already have 10 thank you things that I want to write for people in my head that I just need to go and just do it. But in the early days, I'll be very honest, and I'll, I'll love to hear your process of like how you got to doing it, how often do you do it, and do other people around you started doing it because they saw you doing it, that kind of stuff. But for me, when I started doing it for my team, it, it, it was really hard for the first few weeks and stuff to just do it, and then it became a muscle. And I was sharing with you a little bit about what I do for my wife. So I travel quite a bit. And one of the things I recently started to kind of add to the, to the writing letter, because I could just text my wife and say, I love you, and I do that, but I think it's still a text. So I, w- I would write handwritten notes for her for every night that I'm out, and I will give it to my son, and my son goes and gives it to her. And now he's like nine, so he starts writing his own thing behind it. And I'll tell you, like, that's probably the best thing I've personally done in my 14 years of marriage that, you know, that's keeping it going. I think that's probably why she's still married to me. Uh, but it's, I think the thank you notes, the handwritten notes have a lot of power. So walk us through the process of doing it, how often you do it, how are others looking at it, what has changed for you, any examples? Well, you know, it really started with the habit that my mom instilled in me and my brothers as a kid. And so I started really at an early age. And I think it's an investment and and, and appreciation. So basically showing someone that you care about them, you're reflecting enough on the impact they have on your life that you want to take the time to show how much you appreciate them. And today I write handwritten thank you notes for anyone who's shown me some sort of kindness. But I also write handwritten birthday cards for everyone in the company who is a vice president and above. That's the top 130 people. So on their birthday, they'll get a handwritten note from me, and I've done it for years. And I knew it was important when one day I was actually doing skip levels, and I was down in San Diego, and I saw behind the desk this young lady who had my birthday cards for every year that I'd written them. Wow. And I thought, you know, it really does matter to do that. And then like you, I have found it important. I have uh, two daughters and my wife. I've always had daddy-daughter dates on Saturday with my oldest daughter, on Sunday with my youngest daughter, because anytime I'm with both of them, one can have a more dominant personality. So I wanted to carve out special time. That's so good. And the night that each one of them were born, I wrote a poem for each one. And I wrote one for my wife the night before we were married. I also wrote one I carry in my lapel about the day she made the decision to be a stay-at-home mom after being a very successful trial attorney. So I find it important to express your thoughts in writing and to show other people you care enough to share those thoughts with them. Wow. Can we give a round of applause for that? I mean, that's, that to me, I mean, we can talk, we're going to talk about leadership and the roles of important, but if everybody wants to take that one thing away, I would just say, just do that. It doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal. I mean, handwritten notes go like, let's, let's do that. Let's do that today, right? Like just do that when you go home and just write it for whoever 
you love and is important in your life, and that might be your spouse or it might be your kids. I love, I haven't done that. So I have a nine-year-old son, Krish, and my daughter is five, Kiara. She is, uh, she's five going 16. Every day, every day is like, oh my goodness, she's so smart, and uh, and all the things she wants. But I have not been able to like carve out, and I recognize that she takes ninety percent of the time energy when you're home. And then now my older kid is starting to be like, well, what's going on? I was the oh yes, I was yeah. the one. All right, so let's talk about leadership. Okay, being a CEO of a very successful company, and and being out there, being the face. What is the most important job of a CEO? I think the most important job of a CEO is to first recognize what your job is not. Your job is not to put greatness into people. That greatness already exists. Your job is to create an environment where that greatness can emerge, where people can be authentic to who they are. When I came out of college, my first employer sent me to New York and took me to a course called Communispond, and I got a vocal coach to try to get rid of my Southern accent (laughs) because my boss felt that it didn't make me sound as educated as I should sound. You can see how successful that was. (laughs) About three years into my public presentation career, uh, people would come up and say, who was that kid with that Southern accent? And I decided it wasn't a bug. It was a feature. So I've made it a feature (laughs) the rest of my life. So I say, let your freak flag fly. And I think that's (laughs) important for leaders to create that environment where people can be authentic to who they are. Because if they don't spend time filtering who they are, they can put all that energy into serving customers, being great team members. So that's the most important job of leaders, create an environment where people can be authentic and true to who they are. It's awesome. Talk to us about the culture and how much time, where, how do you think about culture? How do you think about core values in a company? And the reason I ask that is because I have, like, I've just interviewed a ton of, I just interviewed Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, a few weeks ago. And I'm, I'm, rel- I'm starting to recognize that leaders, especially in, in capacity that you have, have tremendous amount of influence on not only when people are at work, but outside of work. Yes. And when you take a stand for something, I think it matters. Yes. And when you don't take a stand, you're in a way taking a stand. Not stand, right? I mean, it's, it's really everybody's observing you, watching you, seeing how you do things, seeing what you say yes to, seeing what you say no to. So... I, I initially used to think culture, quite honestly, just watching Silicon Valley and a whole bunch of shows was like was beanbags and pool table. And then when we started our own company, I realized that it is far from it and we need to create a winning culture. And we started to think about core values that matter to us. So one of our core values at Terminus is one team. And the reason it's our core value is because we realized that as we grew from about three co-founders to about 200 people in the last five years, Everything changed. The communication changed. We were having offices in different locations. So we can't just be in our own silo. We need to act and behave as one team. And that just became a thing that people started to say, and that turned into a core value. So it wasn't like we pushing it on, but it, it just became a part of our conversation. So I'm really curious as to how you think about core values. What was the process? What, was the, what is the culture? Did you change the culture as you became the CEO? Just walk us through that. Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to recognize that when I talk about creating an environment where people can be authentic to who they are, that's also a synonym for culture. Mm. Um, It is the environment in which you create where people feel like they fit, they belong, 
Uh, it's an inclusive culture. Diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. And you have to make that explicit choice to create an environment where everyone's voice matters. Yeah. And everyone has a way to impact the outcomes that you're trying to create. Bill Campbell was our chairman for 16 years and our second CEO. He's known as the coach of the Valley. There's a book called The Trillion Dollar Coach. Unfortunately, he passed away just a few years ago. But when I first took the job, I asked him, what will it take for me to be a successful CEO? He said, good CEOs will deliver the numbers. Great CEOs will go to bed not thinking about every employee and tucking them into bed as they go to sleep. Wow. And that is role of a leader. Awesome. So I think it's critical for us to recognize that we're in the people business. And to your point, for example, today it's really hard. In fact, it's been very hard the last four or five years to be a public company CEO or a private company CEO when there's so many socioeconomic and political divisions happening around the world. And employees want to know when you're going to stand up for something. And what you have to recognize is you may have an individual point of view. Yeah. But that can't be the point of view that you represent. You have to represent the collective point of view. Mm. And so it's really important to say this is what we stand for as a company. These are the values that we adhere to. We're for human rights, civil liberties, and equal protection under the law. Mm. And if any of those are violated, this is how we will take action. Mm. Then as an individual citizen, this may be how I feel about that particular issue, but when I actually look at my customer base, my employee base, they're on all sides of these issues, yeah. and I have to be very thoughtful about reflecting the collective we and not just the individual me. Yeah. And that is not an absence of courage. I have a willingness to say, if you want to know how I feel personally, this is how I feel. If you want to know how collectively we're going to operate, this is how we're going to operate. Yeah. And if you're not explicit about that and you don't create the room for debate, you're going to have division. Can you give an example of things that you took a stand on that was maybe you felt differently personally, but as a company and as a team, you felt like that was the right thing to do? Well, I want to try not to politicize it because it's really what's happening right yep. now. Um, I would say that there have been multiple instances, um, LGBTQ issues, military, uh, DACA, things like that, where we've had to be really clear about does it affect the civil liberties, the human rights, the equal protection under the law of individuals, does it affect our employees? And then what are we going to do or not do as a company? And the one thing we don't believe in doing is immediately grabbing a torch and a pitchfork and going out and marching. Yeah. We believe to try to influence the change, try to have an effect. And if you can't have an effect, then get a larger coalition of the willing to try to drive that change. Right. So we aren't the first to scream from the rooftops. We are the first to make a phone call to whatever that particular office is and say, we do not agree with this, and we want you to sit down and talk to us about how we're going to change it. So that's kind of the approach we've taken, and I feel like we've had a pretty positive impact, and our employees feel like that their voices are being heard. I love that. I love that. And again, that's why I say you should follow him on LinkedIn and stuff, because I think he has shared some of the views that, that I feel are really strong and courageous, and I wish more CEOs and more founders out there in the world would just openly talk about it, regardless of where they stand. It's like not taking a stand is not okay because you are, in fact, taking a stand by not saying something. Well, I'll share this, my friend. It comes from scar tissue and mistakes. So when I was a general manager of our small business division, we were trying to do a reorganization to get ready for the cloud. And I took the leadership team into the conference room, and for six months, we worked every angle. We studied every aspect. We laid out every option, and we came out, and we made this big announcement of how we're going to restructure, and it failed. 
Mm. Absolutely failed. And I stood up in the next all hands and I did what leaders should do. I stood up and said, this is on me. It was my mistake. And the employee said, no kidding. <laughs> they said, let us, let us give you a hint. Next time, start talking to us when you have the questions, not when you think you have the answers. And maybe we can help you come up with a better solution. Yes. So I believe as leaders, we need to start talking about it, even when we're unsure. And say, look, I'm wrestling with this. What do you think? And if you invite the dialogue and the discussion, you're going to have a better outcome. Love that. Was there a time... Maybe I'm, I'm assuming you'll have a ton of thoughts and opinions on this one, Brad. Uh, but was there, like, give uh, walk through maybe a situation for everybody kind of listening. How do you build an all-star team? Because at the end of the day, as you talk about culture and people, we all know it's important. People are the most important things, if, if, if at all, if there's anything else even comparable to it. How do you build a great team and how long certain people work with you on your team that that I mean, some of that, I assume, just shows that, you know, there is trust there that it takes a long time. Um, I realized one thing uh, some time ago is like trust is just built is, is built over time. Yeah. Uh, I can't build. I mean, I've tried it myself or said, you know what, I'm going to go in, like give them the right numbers and, you know, we're just going to go crazy. But numbers don't build trust. Uh, they're just a placeholder where people start questioning, and and when there are problems, you actually go to the number. But trust is built over times, over conversations, or spending and knowing the other person. Can you walk through like how, how do people bring? Uh, how did you build a great team that led into it just to phenomenal success? Well, first of all, thank you, and I'd say I inherited a great company, and I tried not to screw it up. <laughs> I think it was Warren Buffett who said that you should invest in companies that have business models so strong that they can someday endure a monkey running the company because if you wait long enough a monkey will and my company tested that for 11 years so <laughs> we've done okay I, I you know i would start by saying there's a difference between having a team of all-stars and an all-star team and most yeah. people managers try to get the absolute best a player in every position that does not build an all-star team that builds a team of all-stars mm. to build an all-star team you want to find a player that makes the team great because that's more important than just a great player so you have to find people who have the qualities to say, I'm here to make the collective we successful. And if that means passing the shot when it's time for the buzzer beater yeah. and I don't take the shot, but my teammate does, that's what you're looking for. Someone who plays as a we as yeah. opposed to a me. And how do you get to that is you have to really test for humility. Um, that is the most important thing. When I'm interviewing for people, I don't interview for IQ. I interview for CQ, curiosity quotient. Do they lead with questions? Um, do they seek to understand before they seek to be understood? Then the other thing I interview for is humility, the willingness to admit mistakes, yeah. to talk about things they learn from their failures, and the ability to say, and these are individuals that work for me that are now even higher up or have bigger jobs, and I'm proud of their accomplishments. Yeah. And those are the things that I think help build an all-star team. But the lessons that I would encourage you to borrow are those from a book called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal yeah. and Chris Fussell. Um, they led the Joint Special Operations Command in the war against terror, and they lay out this model called Crosslead that we have adopted it into it since 2012, and most of the Silicon Valley's adopted. And it's got four components, and it's how do you actually build a team of trust that operates as an ecosystem? The first is to have a common definition of success, and it's basically a common purpose. And for us, we don't believe that a burning platform is sufficient. People don't want to run from something; they want to run to something. They want to be part of a cause greater than themselves. They want something that makes their hearts beat fast. So really get clear about this aspirational purpose. Mm. 
Then the second thing you have to create is shared consciousness. And that basically means any information you have as a CEO, you should share openly with everybody in the company so they all have the same information at their fingertips. Mm. Then the third thing you should create is empowered execution. Assume that they've watched you make decisions with that information, and as a result, they're starting to apply the same principles and values that you do, and trust that they will make a good decision more times than not. And then the last is trust. And trust, he breaks down into two components. Assuming competence in your teammates and being benevolent enough to feed them before you feed yourself. And so if you put those aspects together, you will have an all-star team. If you have a common purpose that makes everyone play for a cause greater than themselves, you openly share resources and information, you trust that people will make the right decisions on behalf of the team, and at the end of the day, everyone assumes competence in each other, and they're benevolent enough to feed their teammate before they feed themselves. I love that. And you remembered that all, all of those things. How, how long ago did you read that? How did you apply that? Did your team... Like, even I, I wonder if, yeah. like, how, because it's, all of these sound really good. Yeah. In practice, they're hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, strategies don't move mountains, bulldozers do, so there's no question. We learned it. the book was written years ago. We've been applying it for years, um, but more importantly, it's the system that we use to run the company. Mm. So I think if you asked any of the 9,000 employees in the company, they would all be able to tell you these are the four tenets of how we actually build an all-star team. That's fantastic. And we're not there yet. We continue to work at it every day. Love it. All right. Two things leaders should never do. You talked about uh, in one of your, your posts was around fear yeah. of failure. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it creates the crippling effect in a company if you create a fear of failure. We try to create an environment where everyone is an owner and an entrepreneur. We try to reinforce the fact that the number one baseball player of all time, Ted Williams, in terms of a batting average, batted 406 or 407. That means he struck out six out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. But I think many times companies adopt the model, uh, I would call it a gymnast mentality. And I know gymnast is now, gymnastics has now changed its scoring system. But when I grew up, it was a perfect 10. And gymnasts would step out on the floor with a perfect 10, and then they do the routine and they got points deducted. And I think our academic system tries to create this environment where you don't want any points taken off the test. And so we try to be perfect. Yeah. And as a result, we're not creative. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to say, try things, be bold, swing for the fences, be okay with mistakes, because you should treat success and failure the same way, which is an opportunity to learn. Yeah. And one of my favorite books is written by Angela Duckworth called Grit. She did a 30-year longitudinal study on the number one predictor of success. She studied IQ, she studied EQ, and she studied perseverance. And as you can tell from the name of the book, yeah. perseverance is the number one predictor of success. So I think if you create an environment where everyone tries and goes for the fences, and as a leader, you moderate your reactions. If something is red on the dashboard, you seek root cause. Yeah. If it's yellow on the dashboard, you seek through the five whys to figure out if they have confidence. And if it's green, you seek to understand why it was better than you thought. Mm. All three are seeking a why. They're not celebrating or punishing. Um, how, how many of you feel super comfortable in your organization failing at things? I've made a career out of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's 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 hard for a lot of people to even have that conversations. How would you recommend people to have that kind of conversation with their manager or a leader? Yeah, because I think it, a lot of times, if it starts at the top, perfect, awesome, because you model it, you see it every day. A lot of times, I think I've seen people just like, well, I don't think that's going to work, or I I think it's probably going to fail. 
Right. How do you, how do, how, what would you recommend people to think about when that, those kind of thoughts are going through their mind? Well, one of the things that's the perfect anecdote is to adopt a culture of experimentation. So we have adopted a culture of experimentation, all 9,000 employees, HR, legal, finance, engineering, product management, design, you name it, are all trained on the experimentation techniques. Uh, it's called design thinking or the lean startup model by Eric Ries. Yes. And everyone applies it. So we have actually got these big posters that say no PowerPoint, no persuasion, no politics. Anything you assert in a meeting has to be evidence-based because of this experiment, because of what I saw Amazon do, because of my prior experience, I believe we should do this. And then people can debate the evidence before they debate the assertion. And so we truly try to make it evidence-based assertions. And we try to also prevent hippos, highest highest paid uh, personal opinion. (laughs) <laughs> because that's what happens is like, hey, I'm the CEO. I said it, therefore I go do it. So what I've learned to do is say, I've had a lot of bad ideas and you can prove it. Go run an experiment. So I want you to go test this. Experiments. I, l- I love that word. I think, I think instead of this is my project, I'm going to run this initiative. It's like, I'm going to run an experiment and see how it works. Yeah. Uh, I think it just gives you more confidence in people like, okay, if it's an experiment, that's fine. Let's test it out. I yes. think it gives you more confidence. You You talked about parenting as well in a lot of your commentary externally, uh, you have two daughters. Yes. And what has parenting taught you about being a leader? Oh my gosh, so much. Uh, first of all, I, like many of you, perhaps if you have children, my IT department are my girls. <laughs> I mean, they run a technology company, but they help me figure out how to do something on my phone to this day. And it's embarrassing. I'm like, dad, don't you lead a tech company? I said, don't tell anybody. Um, I would say the two most important lessons that I learned from my daughters, one is to be present. When you're with them, be with them. Truly invest in listening to what you want them to be able to express and give you uh, give them the uh, attention they deserve. And so for me, the most important thing is be present. And then the second is there's a poem that I love called, I Would Rather See a Sermon Than to Hear One. Mm. So realize every action that you take Every word choice you select, every furrowed brow that you make, they're watching, yeah. and that's forming who they are. By the way, that lesson applies to leadership. If you're in a leadership role, imagine yourself projected on a 40-foot big screen every day because yeah. employees don't listen to what you say. They listen to what you do. I love that. Yes. They know what your priorities are, not based upon what's written on a piece of paper, but written based upon where you actually spend your time. And so that's the same thing with parenting. So I would say be present, number one, and number two is be the sermon don't mm-hmm. teach the sermon. I love that. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, one, one of the things that I've, I don't think, I don't know if anybody has said this before, but I, I'm a big believer of our priorities are what we do, not what we say. Yeah. No question. Right. And I no feel question. like a lot of, uh, and I've done it probably more times than, than everyone collective where I would say this is really important to me and I would just not spend the time to do it. And, um, you know, just saying, just talking about parenting is like one of the things that um, I remember both Christian Kiara, uh, both running outside the house one day, and I was sharing this story earlier. They just, um, they just ran out and I said, hey, kids, I love you. And they said, I love you too. And they just ran. And I had this like very visceral feeling inside of me feeling like, did I just miss like a moment here? <laughs> or did they like, what, what happened here? So I called them back. And I said, hey, here's, here's what I think we should do from moving on. I don't want you to ever say I love you to me unless you mean it. 
and I'm not going to say I love you to you unless I mean it. Same thing goes when we are sorry. We're going to just say, I'm sorry. But the way we're going to do that is, is this. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to look at your, into your eyes and say, I love you, or I'm sorry. Otherwise, I'm just not going to say it. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that little change that we did was now it's like a competition. It's like, hey, you did not look at me when you said I love you, right? But those moments now are like, you know, you have to stop. Like I remember how many times I would be just writing email, oh, I love you too, and I'm just doing my thing. And now I have to like completely pause, look at them, have that conversation. And that moment that you just mentioned, I'll give anything for this. Good for you. That is a great example of being present. Yeah. So uh, thank you for sharing that with me because I'll take that lesson home as well. That that's great. I'm not sure I'll get an "I love you" in return, but I'm definitely going to be giving them out. (laughs) Like, why are you staring at me? That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I think I think it came after not being present for for many years. I would say. All right. So next generation, how do you prepare the next? You you write a lot about this, and you think about this. You're 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 getting your leaders on your team to be ready and out there. Uh, you know, you talked about like ways you you know you can prepare the next generation for the future. Any any tips? Any thoughts? And I know you're you're presenting. You're doing a keynote at what one o'clock? I am. Yes. Yeah, one o'clock. So maybe you can just give a little bit of sneak peek of like what you're talking about there. In terms of preparing the next generation, I think first and foremost, you have to really be understanding what are the most important capabilities or skill sets that the company will need or your team will need or your family will need to navigate the chapter ahead. Not the chapter you've had, but the chapter you're going to be facing Mm. because the world's rapidly changing. You know, we know we live in a connected economy here powered by the cloud with devices in the palm of our hand on our wristwatches at the command of a voice. we got big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, They do the algorithm, say the pace of change is 10 times faster than it was six years ago. So one of the most important things you have to develop is hypothesis-driven thinking, Um, the ability for scenario planning. The days of this false precision of a business plan are gone. So you want to make sure that the next generation is getting a lot of practice at developing if-then scenarios. So this is why experimentation is so important, I believe. The second is you want to give them the ability to get breadth of experience. And so we rotate our leaders, and they run all parts of the company, both in center functions and in businesses. And only if they can demonstrate an ability to move outside, outside of their domain expertise and learn to leave with questions instead of answers yeah. are they prepared for this next chapter. And then the third is we really watch at how good they are at creating an environment where people can be authentic, and they're highly engaged, and they're highly productive because they will be in the people business. So we literally put them in situations where they're outside of their comfort zone, they're in their learning zone, and many times in their panic zone, and we see how they react in those situations. And that's the best way to prepare. I had a professor at West Point who told me the best way to prepare leaders is to bake them on high. And uh, I think we kind of do that. We put them in stressful situations and see how they respond when they don't have all the answers. Yeah, I love that. You, you know, you mentioned one of the things in your commentaries before where things that you wish you knew before becoming a CEO. Yes. Um, and we'll then go into things I wish you knew when you were 22. So we'll get to that in a second. But before becoming a CEO, what, what was your kind of like, all right, I'm going to go in, obviously, into it. It's a great company, as you said. Um, was doing well as you walked into it. What was you walked into it, what you didn't know, and what did you learn coming into it? Well, the first was Time Horizon. When you're a functional leader sometimes a general manager, you're doing one-year plans, three-year plans, you're managing quarterly numbers, you're managing LTV to CAC. 
Yeah. You're looking at all those things to optimize a funnel. And so you're focused on a dashboard. And then when you're a CEO, you have to focus on the windshield. Mm. You have to look out five to 10 years. You have to think about the eight or 10 macro trends that you're unsure how you're going to navigate. And you've got to build a culture of inclusion where the team collectively says, what are we going to do about that? Um, the hardest thing to do is become the version of you you want to be without losing who you are in the process. So you have to create an environment that says these are the things that won't change and these are all the other things we're going to question and reinvent ourselves. And I'll talk more about that later in my keynote. So the first is getting this perspective of time and the time needs to be much longer range because your job is to create a company that's built for the next generation to stand on your shoulders and be able to take it to the next level. The second thing is altitude. Uh, I really struggled with this the first year, year and a half, because I've been the general manager of three of our businesses, TurboTax, QuickBooks, and our pro business. And when I stepped in about a year into the job, I had one of the general managers come to me and said, hey, you have got to take the nose of the plane up here because mm -hmm. you're asking questions that a general manager would ask. Yeah. You need to ask questions that a CEO would ask. It's up to me, the general manager, to figure out LTV to CAC. It's up to you to figure out how we're going to navigate that next turn. Right. And so you should be asking me those longer range questions. And so I had to adjust my altitude. And then when you become a board member, it's even more evident. Your job is not to run the company. Your job is to ensure the right people are running the company. And your job is to provide the resources to assist them. So altitude is the second big thing. And then the, the third thing is really recognizing that curiosity quotient is the key differentiator. And so seeking people who are always a learn-it-all versus a know-it-all. Yeah. And having those people around you are probably the most important things that I would solve for. That's fantastic. I love, I really love that, that curiosity question. Let's talk about you things that you wish you knew when you were 22. <laughs> oh, just a couple of years back, but yeah, yeah. yeah just a couple of <laughs> years. Yeah. It was like two birthdays ago. <laughs> you know, one I kind of alluded to earlier, but if I could tell my 22 year old self, it is about we, not me. Mm. I heard a story once. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've repeated it many times as if it was. It's true now. But uh, Muhammad Ali obviously had a storied career and lifetime. And early in his career, he could be polarizing at times because he stood for what he believed in. But he also had this ego about him. You know, I am the greatest, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee, rumble, young man, rumble. And then later, of course, he had a lot of adversity and things thrown his way and became the world's inspiration around the world. He was an inspiration then, and many people loved him, but he became more beloved towards the end of his life when he had to deal with Parkinson's and some of the other things. And I heard the story that somebody came up to him once and said, we know you love to be a poet. We just heard that they published the shortest poem in history in the Guinness Book World Records, and it's six words written in Latin. He said, I can do better. I can write the shortest poem in my biography in two words, me, we. Mm. And that kind of summed up a journey of someone who was more about how am I going to be the greatest and how are we going to be the greatest. And I think that's what I would tell my 22-year-old self because we're in an environment now where there's a lot of selfies and a lot of focus on my stats and my numbers and the school system talks about my grades and my GPA. And then you figure out when you get into the world that you've got to be able to be a part of a collective we. And then the second piece of advice I would give is volunteer for the job nobody else wants. That has been the secret to my career. If you volunteer for the job nobody else wants, typically it's going to be under-resourced. Yeah. It's going to be high risk, and you're going to have to be scrappy and innovative to make it a winner. Yeah. But secondly, if you do that enough times, you're going to become known to as the go-to person. Yeah. And the boss is going to say, hey, we've got a really good idea here now. Yeah. Let's go let him have a shot at that because he keeps taking these crappy assignments yeah. or she keeps taking these crappy assignments. <laughs> Next thing you know, you end up in a job that you never thought you would have. That is. Can you give an example of one of uh, one of those projects that you took on that oh. nobody else wanted? Or multiple, multiple desktop products in a cloud and mobile world. 
You know, when the, the, the most popular joke in the Silicon Valley was why was the Almighty able to create heaven and earth in seven days? Because he didn't have legacy technology and an installed <laughs> base of clients to migrate. With all due respect, I know you can do it. But the point is no one ever wants to deal with yesterday stuff. They all want to chase the new stuff. So volunteer for the yesterday stuff. That's typically where most of your customers are already, yeah. and that's where all your revenue and your profit is. And if you can find a way to take care of that and help it get to the future, then you're going to get your chance to work on the new stuff. I love so I made a career out of doing that. That's awesome. All right. Do you, does anybody have questions? I know last time there's tons of people had questions, and I want to make sure that we do take time if anybody has questions. So think about that. Raise your hand or just walk up here, and we'll, we'll take a question as you have. Let's talk about – so I really wanted to get into this, this specific thing about community. And one of the things we say on the Flip My Phone podcast all the time is that without a community, you're simply a commodity. Mm-hmm. And we say that, we believe that, and I, I just – in my own journey of Terminus and doing the Flip My Phone podcast is Terminus is the company and the software that we build, but Flip My Phone is the community that we ended up just being part of uh, and leading the way – and I've just realized it more often than not, there's no reason why somebody would know about our company based out of Atlanta, three first-time founders starting off, trying to help build a new category. I think there was just no reason. And almost like this could be a book written on saying that the odds, why, you know, why we were successful, I would say we, we shouldn't be because there was just no reason. And then when I go back and look at, we're here at Inbound right now, right? It is a community. And we're going to interview Kip, uh, who's the CMO of HubSpot, a little bit later after this one. And, you know, and he said in the opening is that, well, we, instead of creating a world where we're just asking and getting more every single day, we want to create a place where people can give and learn and be part of something bigger than themselves as a software company. And you're, you look at that, I'm like, that's fantastic. You take a step back and then look at Salesforce and you think about they creating Dreamforce as a place for community to be together. Um, some of you are probably familiar with uh, Gainsight and creating Pulse or like Drift here, creating Hypergrowth. And you start looking at these trends of like, wait a minute, a lot of these category leading companies are creating massive movements by investing in the community and building community as, as a starting point. And I also remember like in, when, when I was interviewing Brian, he said, that's almost like one of the greatest moat that they have around their business. Oh, yeah. Because anybody wants to go and compete with, let's say, HubSpot today, they have to go build a 20,000 people plus like community that is fully engaged in everything. And I was like, that was a really insightful thing. So I'm, I'm curious of how you think about community. How does that expand beyond just customer community and employees and stakeholders just kind of be part of it? How do you think about that? Well, the same way you described it and the way Brian described it, um, if you look at the last 10 companies whose market caps have grown most significantly, they all have two things in common, their network effect businesses and their ecosystems. And ecosystems are code for a community. Right. And if you just break that down into small businesses, for example, the average small business owner uses 18 to 20 apps to run their business. Mm. Intuit's a 36-year-old company that's market leading, and we have three of those 18 to 20 apps. If we want to make that customer's life better and we want to measure success through their success, not through our revenue and sales, our stuff needs to interoperate seamlessly with those other products and services, even if they compete with one of our three. Mm. And so there is a wonderful book right now called Friend and Foe, and it is an updated book on the importance of building an ecosystem and being okay with collaborating and competing on any given day. 
but more importantly, making your goal reducing friction in the customer's life. And so all of us in the community add value in some ways. Sometimes we bring, bring advice and expertise. Sometimes we bring third-party software. Sometimes we bring the data. But collectively, we have to measure success through the eyes of the customer. And that is the most competitive, durable advantage you can build. Yeah, I love that. I love that. All right. So one challenge you want to give everybody as an aspiring leader right now here is like, there's one thing I want you to do. I think one thing I've, I've realized just doing the podcast is that people say, oh, that was great and that was awesome. I'm like, what do you take away from it? And unless you're writing and taking notes, I think it's really hard for people to just like, all right, what is the one thing I need to take away? So I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on, on some of these things. What is the one challenge you would give to every leader listening to this right now that it's practical enough for them to just go do it? To lead with your vulnerability, admit when you don't know the answer, open the question up to the employees and the teammates around you and own your mistakes. My father ended up being the mayor of our hometown. He didn't get to finish high school. Yeah, my mom had the gift of my older brother when they were seniors in high school. And so she graduated, he got a GED and he went on to have an incredible career and then became the mayor. And I watched him give a speech one July 4th when I was back home. And at that point I'd gotten my master's and I was having a career and I was the only one that left the state. So I was living all over the country and he used the word ain't about a dozen times. And afterwards, I went up and I said, hey, Dad, can I give you some feedback? Mm. And he smiled. He said, sure. What, son? I said, well, you used the word ain't about a dozen times. And when you sat at the dinner table with my brothers and me, you wouldn't let us use that grammar. What gives? He said, son, this is who I am. And if you look out there, this is who they are. And if they can see that I'm capable of being the mayor and not being perfect, maybe one of them will aspire to be the mayor as well. Don't ever forget people prefer their leaders with flaws because that makes leadership more attainable for the rest of us. Now, that's not value flaws and character flaws. That's a willingness to admit a mistake. Yeah. So that would be the thing I would encourage all of us to do. It creates a safe environment for everyone else to try. Man, I love that. That's like so good. We love that. Love that. All right. So we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up with um, first thing, sentence, word, person, whatever comes to your mind as I go through these six words. Sure. All right. You guys ready for this? All right. I have no idea what these six words are, but I'm ready. All right, ready to go. All right, power. What? Power. Power? Yeah. Women. All right. Father of two daughters. All right. That's awesome. Love. My wife. All right. Priorities. Family. Leader. Humility. Servant. Leadership. Legacy. Don't ask the actor how the play went. Ask the audience. Woo. All right. Awesome, Brad. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank it was you. really Thanks, everybody. All right. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>